It's Thursday, September 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. So much is happening in Washington right now, and no signs of slowing down. An impeachment inquiry has been launched by Democrats. A declassified transcript summary has been released by the White House of a phone call Trump had with the Ukrainian president. And we are waiting to learn more about the whistleblower complaint that started it all. Morgan Chalfant, White House reporter at The Hill, joins us for more on what was said in the phone call. Next, you've heard all about the crisis at the border and the influx of migrant families seeking asylum. But what happens after they are released into the U.S. and waiting for the next step in the process? Oftentimes, they are exhausted, sick, out of money, and it is up to the local border communities to pick up the tab for helping them out. Alan Gomez, immigration reporter for USA Today, tells us how local governments are spending millions caring for migrants released by the Border Patrol. Finally, earlier this summer, an asteroid narrowly missed the Earth and internal NASA emails show that scientists were completely caught off guard by its rapid approach. This near miss resurfaced the long-running conversation of how to build a reliable way to detect potentially hazardous asteroids. Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News, joins us for more on the sneaky space rock. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It's the single greatest witch hunt in American history, probably in history, but in American history. It's a disgraceful thing. The way you had that built up, that call, it was going to be the call from hell. It turned out to be a nothing call. Joining us now is Morgan Chalfant, White House reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Morgan. Thanks for having me. The big story politically this week is all about President Trump, the impeachment inquiry announced by Democrats, the call that President Trump had with the Ukraine president asking him to look into Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. This story is fast moving and there's more to come still as the director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, will be testifying Thursday before the House and Senate on this whistleblower complaint. Morgan, let's start off with what we know about this memorandum of telephone conversation between the president and the Ukrainian president Zelensky. So the White House released a partial transcript of the call today, basically a summary of the call, including some quotes. It describes the president talking to Zelensky, starting off by congratulating him on his election victory. But then he goes on to bring up Joe Biden and basically encourage the Ukrainian president to contact his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and also the attorney general of the United States, William Barr, and investigate allegations that he and Giuliani have pushed against Biden. Trump mentions Biden's name three times in the call in Giuliani several times and also offers to put Zelensky in contact with Barr and Giuliani during the phone conversation. A lot of this centers on whether there was a quid pro quo in this. You know, the stories leading up to this were that the president had withheld military aid to the Ukraine in the days leading up to this call. And then he was asking him to look into the Bidens and, and whatnot. In this call, in this memo that was released, the president nor the president from Ukraine specifically say anything about this money. But the Ukrainian president does say, hey, we're getting the money ready. We want to buy more javelins from the United States. Thank you for your help with defense. And then the president goes into right after that, I would like you to do us a favor, though. And this kind of sets off this discussion where they do eventually bring up the Bidens and a possible investigation. So this is where the sticky points really are. There was no word for word quid pro quo, but it just seems like 
with a wink and a nod, everybody knew what each other was talking about. Right. Like you said, no explicit quid pro quo, but definitely is going to continue to raise concerns among Democrats. Many Democrats today were unified in saying that this bolsters their case for impeachment. Obviously, they're looking for more information beyond the call. They're reviewing the redacted version of the whistleblower complaint right now. They'll get the chance to question the direct, uh, acting director of national intelligence tomorrow. So this is certainly going to fuel Democrats as they push forward on this as kind of the center of this impeachment inquiry they've opened up. And I expect it to be a focus for several days. I mean, the pace this news cycle goes, this story has really had quite the sticking point. One of the biggest points of confusion and something that I think needs a lot more exploration is the role that the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, plays in a lot of this. In the call, he's telling the Ukrainian president to get in touch with Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani on various TV appearances has been talking about the Bidens and what happened in the Ukraine. So it really seems like we need to find out more about what his role was in this. What was he doing in calls with aides? The president of Ukraine even said, one of my aides spoke to Rudy Giuliani. So I think we need to find out a little bit more about that for context on whether the president was asking a foreign country to interfere in the election. Right. And obviously, we've seen Giuliani talk about this for several weeks now. And on CNN, in an interview last week, acknowledged that he talked to the Ukrainian government about it. Obviously, the Zelensky reference and him saying that he'd like to meet with Giuliani in, in the future does raise continued questions about what Giuliani's involvement has been. And there's been some reporting in the Washington Post, particularly about how Giuliani sort of run the shadow campaign and kept people, officials in the government, out of his effort to probe all of this. So he's certainly a central figure into it. President Trump has defended him and defended his behavior, so that he's just looking to get to the bottom of the witch hunt, as Trump refers to the Mueller investigation. So he still has the president's support, but he's certainly a person of interest as Democrats look forward on their investigations. What's the thinking from the president's camp? He's being very forthright with all this. What's their thinking? What did he say at the press conference? He was rather muted for Trump at the press conference. He did appear tired. He criticized the media and Democrats basically accusing Democrats of doing this impeachment announcement purposefully at the U.N. so it would distract from his accomplishments there. He said that the media has been covering this unfairly and, you know, it's common criticism the president has with, with the press. So he certainly doubled down on that and basically tried to equate Democrats' behavior towards Ukraine with his own while also defending his own actions, saying that the call was fine. There was no pressure. Of course, he saw Zelensky alongside Trump at a press conference earlier today, so he didn't feel pressured by Trump to pursue the Biden allegations. So I think you're going to continue to see the president kind of toe that line and really defend himself. I do think that Republicans are going to continue to be under pressure to kind of defend him on Capitol Hill. A lot of his allies came out today saying Democrats had gotten over their skis because they hadn't seen the call and there is no explicit quid pro quo really zeroing in on that. You did see some criticize. Mitt Romney said that it was troubling. I'm certain to see that you'll see some Republicans come out and raise concerns about this, especially if more damaging information does come out. Morgan Chalfant, White House reporter for The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
just this is a city that's just not used to processing or handling a bunch of migrants who have just crossed that southern border and they just were dropped off in the middle of the night off of a border patrol bus and so local officials had no idea what to do they didn't even know the right department to call within border patrol because they just don't deal with them very often joining us now is alan gomez immigration reporter for usa today thanks for joining us alan thanks for having me oscar we're going to be talking a little bit about immigration and what's going on after migrants are released by Border Patrol into nearby cities. The toll of the influx that these migrants have on local governments is pretty large. The migrants are often bussed out to cities. They often have very little money. They might be sick from some of their time spent in Border Patrol custody. And it's up to these local communities to take care of them. And there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of stuff going on. Alan, help us out with the story. What do we know? So basically, as we've seen over the past year or so, this massive influx of mostly Central American migrants who have been coming over, we hear about what happens when they get to the border. We hear about sort of the conditions that they're in in Border Patrol facilities along the border. But after that, that next phase then kind of disappears. And what was happening throughout that whole period when we were getting these record numbers of people coming over was that Border Patrol was realizing that they were at capacity, couldn't hold all of them in their facility. So they were releasing mostly families. So think mothers with children, fathers with children, in some cases, just whole family units. And at first they were just started dumping them in cities, leaving them on street corners, leaving them at bus stations with little to no advance warning to local officials. So a lot of these local governments along the border started seeing this, started asking Border Patrol what was going on, realizing that this was going to be an ongoing thing, and then deciding that they had to do something on their own to try to help these people and at least get them some basic level of care. And to clarify, these are migrants, you know, family units, as you were saying, that requested asylum, went through the initial process, and then were released into the general population, basically awaiting their next step. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of them were those who requested asylum. Others are seeking other kinds of relief, but the basic idea is the same. They were initially detained. They were processed by Border Patrol. And a determination was made at some point that they could be released into the United States to await their next hearing in immigration court, basically. Local governments have spent at least $7 million over the past year to care for thousands of these undocumented migrants after being released by the federal government. One of the first examples you start off with in your article is San Antonio they received more than 31,000 migrants released by Border Patrol. San Antonio is not on the border. They're more than 150 miles away. So this is a city that's just not used to processing or handling a bunch of migrants who have just crossed that southern border. And they just were dropped off in the middle of the night off of a Border Patrol bus. And so local officials had no idea what to do. They didn't even know the right department to call within Border Patrol because they just don't deal with them very often. So the city started taking a lot of different steps. They started setting up a processing center for them to come in, provide their information to help get them at least food for a day or two get them shelter for a day or two. And the most important part is helping them make phone calls to relatives that they have in the United States to coordinate transportation from San Antonio onto where they were eventually going to go. One of the other cities that had some pretty crazy numbers was Deming, New Mexico. The migrants that were dumped there were numbered 7,500. And this is a community with a population of 14,000. So basically half their population in migrants were dumped in that city. 
It was a sort of chain reaction where you had El Paso, Texas, which is the westernmost city in Texas. I mean, they were just getting absolutely overwhelmed by people who were being dropped off in El Paso. So as El Paso would reach capacity, Border Patrol would pretty much just go to the next city up. So they started going to Las Cruces, New Mexico. Then they moved over to Deming, New Mexico. And by the end of this peak period in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is 200 miles from the border, they started seeing some migrants getting dropped off there. And yeah, Deming, its population of 14,000, they got more than half of that in the number of migrants that were dumped off there. And they had to end up shelling out at least $500,000 to care for them and to take care of those migrants. City leaders from both political parties are very frustrated with the administration for what they think of as something that the federal government should be handling. And Congress has set aside $30 million to reimburse border communities as part of the spending bill that passed last year. But still, in some cases, it just takes forever to get any type of money back. I think McAllen, Texas mobilized a bunch of money to help people. I think it took them about a year to get any type of money back. This was going back to the migrant crisis that happened in 2014. So the process is very slow, and these community leaders, city leaders, don't know if they will get reimbursed or anything. Yeah, it was really interesting. I was speaking with a couple of these border officials who pointed to 2014. And that migrant crisis, to remind everybody, was unaccompanied minors. That's when we first saw just this really big rush of just minors who were coming over by themselves. And then during that period, as you mentioned, McAllen, Texas, they spent about $600,000 in taking care of them. And it wasn't one year. It took, I think it was four years before they got their first check from the federal government. And that was $175,000, so less than 30% of what they paid out. So this time around, as these border communities started seeing these huge numbers of families that were being dropped off. I spoke to a couple officials who just kind of gave a heads up to their city leaders. Hey, look, this is what happened in McAllen. This is what happened in these other cities. It took that long and they only got a percentage of what they paid. So we have to be fully prepared if we're going to jump in and help these folks to swallow a lot of that money. And with the slight chance that maybe sometime down the road, we're going to get some money back. Alan Gomez, immigration reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. NASA is building a, a test rocket called DART, which would deflect an asteroid by either gravitational influence. You know, you fly around it and essentially the weight of the satellite over time would change its uh, trajectory. But also you just smack into it with either a warhead or even a nuke. Joining us now is Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Happy to be here. In late July, there was a record-setting asteroid that came just about 40,000 miles close to Earth. It's the largest space rock to come so close in about a century. And this kind of thing happens every now and then. But the thing that's really interesting about this is that it caught NASA by surprise. It came out of nowhere. They were able to spot it within 24 hours, but these things are moving so fast that it passed by the Earth so quickly. Dan, tell us a little bit about this because you guys got a bunch of internal documents and emails from NASA just kind of explaining how caught off guard they were by this. Right. It made a little bit of a splash in late July when the passage happened. And my colleague, Jason Leopold, made a public records request through FOIA for the communication. And NASA, to their credit, sent us these records very quickly. And there were emails saying, like, 
how did we miss this one? You know, and this one snuck past uh, all our nets where there was like a two day detective story afterwards where the planetary defense, that's what they really call planetary defense officials at NASA, figured out what had gone wrong to let it get past them. It was a series of interesting glitches and then got really pissed off about the news coverage of the whole thing and fired off some angry letters at other news organizations. My favorite excerpt from some of these emails that went back, back and forth were because there may be media coverage tomorrow. I'm alerting you that in about 30 minutes, a 57 to 130 meter sized asteroid will pass by Earth. That's <laughs> it's like they can already they can already see that it was coming. And part of what they were disputing was that a lot of media were saying that this could be a city killer. And that causes a lot of alarm with people. They're in a tough spot, right? They can't yell chicken little about things or they're going to get ignored when something really is happening, which is going to be unbelievably rare for it to happen, but they don't want people ignoring them. So they're all constantly trying to tamp down concerns. They hate having these things referred to as so many megatons of damage because they think that people be confused and think it's like a bomb going off. At the same time, I mean, they put out these news releases that say, like, if it had hit the earth, it would have wiped out an area about 50 miles across, which, you know, is about the size of a city, as far as I can tell. So it's a little bit of a balancing act they're trying to work here. What happened with all of this, too, is that it kind of stirred up this conversation again about what right. to actually do when something could potentially hit the earth. I guess in 2005, there was a law passed that where lawmakers ordered the space agency to detect 90 percent of hazardous asteroids that could potentially hit the earth or whatnot. And that's why, you know, NASA was so concerned that they missed this one in particular. But this caused this whole conversation. What do we actually do? if an asteroid is coming by too close. The planetary defense community is spends a lot of time actually worrying about this and running through scenarios and there's a whole protocol for how people would be, you know, if one was gonna smack into Denver, that was the most recent exercise in May how we would alert people in staging evacuations and that sort of thing. The problem, of course, with that law is that it's one of these things where Congress has said to the agency, you shall do this, and then they didn't give enough money or the instruments to actually do it. So they're stuck in a rock and a hard place where they know that they might miss one of these guys. I mean, the truth is that if this thing had been coming directly from the sun, you can't point a telescope at the sun and burn it out, we would have missed it too. So roughly half of these we're going to miss either way unless we get better instruments. Space-based ones would do a, a much better job. And what plans do we actually have if something happens? I mean, you know, we can't right. we can't call Bruce Willis and his crew to fly up there and explode this thing with a nuke. I mean, what well, what plans do can. they actually have? NASA is building a, a test rocket called DART, which would deflect an asteroid by either gravitational influence. You know, you fly around it and essentially the weight of the satellite over time would change its uh, trajectory. Or else you just smack into it with either a warhead or even a nuke is in the extreme version of the plan. We wrote a story about that about a year and a half ago. So you have to build that thing. You have to have it built and ready to go is the problem. And that thing being built is actually what's held up funding for the observer to see it coming. So in the meantime, though, NASA still wants more money, at least to beef up the telescopes. I mean, that's the key thing is the early detection of this. So we know what's coming. That would be nice. Yes. Uh, NASA has all kinds of distractions, though. They've been told to land a person on the moon by 2024, and they're already asking Congress for $1.6 billion just this year alone to do that. It's going to cost like $30 billion. So they're not, you know, like putting another hand out and say, hey, I'll give us money for this other thing isn't very likely right now. So the space agency has to make it a priority. The Trump administration has to make it a priority. And people in Congress have to say this is a big enough deal, unlikely as it is to happen, that we actually have to spend a little bit of cash to make sure we're not surprised. Because it's going to take a decade for that whole gravitational deflection thing to work. You have to see it coming like a long way off. 
Well, a lot of work to do on this. At least for now, we know that we weren't really in imminent danger with this latest. We one. were in no danger from this one. I, I mean, they did know that. Like, as soon as they spotted it, they got the trajectory and they said, like, okay, this isn't going to kill anybody. So, I mean, when we complained to them, you know, what's going on here, they did say, look, let's be clear here. Nobody was hurt and we knew nobody was going to be hurt. So, in fairness to them, I should say that. Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.